This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 232, Pearl Harbor, the first attack wave. Last time, as Fuchida's first attack wave came over Oahu, their targets had already been selected, based upon the information provided by the spy Takeo Yoshikawa and the two reconnaissance planes that had just flown over the island. But what was not included in that list of targets, specifically, were the massive fuel depots that served Pearl Harbor. As Yamamoto had made clear, the Japanese military only needed six months free of American interference to gather the resource-rich lands they needed to the southwest and to set up a defense in depth. After that, the Westerners could bleed themselves dry trying to reach the home islands. But even more, if enough enemy vessels could be sunk here and now, then the Japanese Navy would have almost equal odds of winning the great naval showdown that was sure to come. Now was the moment of truth. As the Japanese fighters, bombers, and torpedo planes came in, there were some 80 American ships scattered throughout Pearl Harbor, and eight of those vessels were the battleships. Seven in Battleship Row and one in Dry Dock to the southwest of her sister ships. On came the 183 warplanes of the Japanese Empire, of which 40 were torpedo bombers and 49 were horizontal bombers. These were assigned to Battleship Row. Assisting them, if all went well, would be five midget subs that were charged with entering the harbor, but were to hold off their attack until the bombing started. 
Before the harbor itself was set upon, the Wheeler Army Airfield was attacked, as it was in the center of Oahu, to the northwest of the harbor, by 10 miles, or 16 kilometers. Stationed at Wheeler Field was the Air Force's 14th Pursuit Wing, comprised of 99 Curtis P-40 Warhawk fighters, 39 Curtis P-36 Hawks, another fighter, along with additional older aircraft. At 8.02 a.m., a small squadron of planes flew over, seemingly heading for Ford Island. Wheeler's aircraft were being guarded by a single private first class, who had in his hands a Springfield rifle made in 1903. But the PFC was observant, and as the planes shot over, he saw the red balls on the wing's planes, locally referred to as meatballs. He knew his Springfield would not make much of a difference, so ran to a hangar to get a machine gun. But as General Short had the island on sabotage alert, the door was locked. PFC Fusco broke the armory's lock. However, by the time this was done, the hangar was on fire, and soon the ammunition inside would be going off without his help. Fusco backed away. At that moment, the man in charge of Wheeler Field, Colonel William Flood, was standing just outside his headquarters. He heard an explosion, which he assumed was somebody screwing up. But before he could take another step, the engineering shops at Hangar 1 exploded. Then even bigger explosions rocked his storage of aviation-grade fuel and the ammunition depot. Whatever was going on was not an accident. The men in the mess hall at Wheeler Field heard the explosions, and like so many, figured, boy, somebody messed up. So they rushed outside. It was then they saw the planes with the meatballs on their wings. One plane was flying so low, the Americans on the ground could see the pilots smile. Another plane was soon caught up in the power lines. Wheeler's anti-air defenses consisted of one fifty caliber gun atop the local fire station. But by now, as the various buildings were ablaze, the fire crews were gone battling the flames. This left one guard from the stockade and some of his prisoners to man the fifty caliber. They were shooting at anything and everything that came within sight. Now that the Japanese bombers were bereft of their bombs, they joined in with the fighters, strafing the airfield. First, they came in from the west and then turned around to come in from the east and as there was no American presence in the air, the Japanese pilots had their pick of targets, men running around the various buildings, and of top priority, of course, were the parked American warplanes. For what seemed like hours, but was really only minutes, the Americans ran from one hiding spot to another as the Japanese strafed them. Soon the air was filled with smoke from burning oil, which advantaged the Americans in this cat-and-mouse game. But all around, men watched as their comrades died by the dozens. Some were hit with bullets, which tore off arms or legs, or left massive holes in their victims, while others died as bombs landed close enough 
to send dozens of pieces of shrapnel into their bodies. These were images the survivors would never forget. By the time the Japanese planes departed Wheeler Field, either for the harbor or for the Army's massive Schofield barracks just to the north, they left behind 39 Americans killed and 59 more injured. It was only the Japanese dive bombers and fighters that made for the Schofield installation. It was not a part of the attack plan, mostly because the spy Takeo Yoshikawa had not listed it as valuable. But as the Japanese had to fly over it to get to Wheeler, many of them then turned around to strafe it as well. Schofield held an unusually large barracks, besides a hospital, and most of the men, still in bed or at mess, assumed the explosions they heard were just another, albeit realistic, exercise. The men ran outside, and upon seeing nearby buildings being shot up, realized they were at war. They then considered it paramount to save the planes. Some of the men ran for the line of planes. Others ran back to the barracks to wake up their comrades by yelling at them, This is not a drill. The island is under attack. The men reached the planes, but only after eating some dirt, when another attacking plane flew over them and began to push or pull the planes apart so they would not be in a straight line, perfect for strafing. Though some of the men died while doing so, about 30 planes were saved. Twelve of them were able to take off. But they then came under immediate fire from what anti-aircraft units were still functional. Chaos reigned. The Schofield Army Hospital was quickly overrun with patients, and so a doctor ran outside to tell those still unloading trucks, cars, and ambulances to take them to Tripler General Hospital in Honolulu, along the southern coast. The medical staff knew they would never be able to help all those already on their doorstep, much less new arrivals. Just like the military units, the medical staff was unprepared and overwhelmed. Just before 8 a.m., the Japanese fighters and bombers assigned to Hickam Field located just south of Battleship Row, started their attack. The airstrip and its administrative buildings were only two years old, and Hickam was considered state-of-the-art. There on the airstrip, or in its hangars, were six B-17 flying fortresses, 12 A-20 Havocs, a light bomber, and 33 B-18 Bolos, a medium bomber. The Bolo was already being surpassed by other, faster, bigger planes. Hence, it would be relegated to anti-submarine duty as the Americans entered the war. But at the moment, it was what the Americans had on hand. But not after Pearl Harbor. The men of Hickam Field were awakened by blazing guns and explosions. As one bomb went through the windows of a barracks, dozens of men were killed instantly. For the survivors, there was no confusion or questions of whether they were under attack. The soldiers went for their weapons, but again, most of the guns were locked up. 
So they ran outside to defend themselves with old Springfield rifles and Colt 45 semi-automatics. Four men who were trying to cover each other while setting up a defensive perimeter on the camp's baseball field were killed within seconds of each other by a strafing plane. Many other victims were just arriving at work and were killed either in their cars or as they walked up to the base. Of course, the American pilots flying the 12 incoming B-17 Flying Fortresses from California were unaware of the attack at Hickam, their destination. For those waiting on the ground to watch the B-17s land, which was considered something of an event by aviation enthusiasts, for them and the incoming pilots, the attack on Pearl Harbor started like this. With the crowd below waiting, when a V formation came into view, they all assumed it was the B-17s. One observer even said, we're going to get an air show, meaning the pilots, though flying for over 12 hours, had decided to put on a demonstration. However, another of the crowd commented that the incoming planes did not look like B-17s. Maybe they were Navy fighters. However, everything became more clear and yet more confusing when the lead bomber dropped his payload. Seconds later, an oil tank ignited. Before the crowd could react to the obviously tragic mistake, a second bomb landed on the mess hall of Hickam. Thirty-five men died while eating breakfast. But it was the third plane strafing the cloud that let the onlookers know this was not business as usual. As for the B-17 pilots, as they approached Hickam, they saw smoke over the area and assumed that the nearby sugarcane fields were ablaze. Meanwhile, the lead crew saw a single row of fighters coming at them. Aha, the Navy pilots were going to have a go at them, arrogant fighter pilots. But Hickam Base Operations Officer, Captain Gordon Blake, who had, just seconds earlier, spotted a plane with meatballs on its wings, ran into the tower to help the pilots land as fast as they could. However, his crew was already on it telling the pilots what they needed to know. Their assigned runway, the direction of the wind, and, of course, that the airfield was under attack by unknown planes. The first B-17 to attempt a landing was piloted by Truman Landon. He was coming in all the while, cursing, as his one fifty caliber machine gun was currently in a crate. When one of his crew yelled, "'Damn it, those are Japs!' Landon turned and lost his pursuers in the confusion. As he was making his approach again, a voice from the tower said, You have three Japs on your tail. But that wasn't the worst of it. The anti-aircraft crews on the ground, who were operational, started firing up at the lead B-17. So Landon was getting it both ways. Still, he managed to land and no one from his crew was injured. The next B-17 to try to land was piloted by Captain Raymond Swenson, but as a Japanese fighter was shooting at him, Swenson's reaction made him miss the airstrip. He came around again, but then magnesium flares in the back of his plane 
were ignited, probably by an enemy bullet. The crew ran up to the front of the plane to get away from the fire. Yet the fire did injure one of them, Lieutenant William Schick, in the leg. Swenson got the plane down, but not before Schick was injured again, this time in the face. The man soon died of one or from both of these wounds. A third B-17 somehow managed to land with no casualties. As it descended, the crew could see to the north, flames and smoke coming from Battleship Row. But that was it. Hickam was now too hot for any other planes to land. So the crews talked amongst themselves and made for various outlying airfields. The B-17s that had made it as far as Hickam Field turned north. Two planes went northwest and landed at Haliwa Auxiliary Field, though the strip was supposed to be far too short for a fortress. As the ground crew there had seen the enemy before everyone else, except for George Elliott and Joseph Lockhart at the radar station, they already had what guns were accessible in hand. The two B-17s landed. Fortunately, they were not shot at by their comrades on the ground. But one Zero that was certainly trying to get the planes before they landed was met by many bullets coming up from the ground. The men all missed. But as the Zero flew away, a P-40 Warhawk came from somewhere and gave chase. As the Zero cleared the coast, the American fighter got in close and took him out with his 50 caliber machine gun. The men on the ground had at least one thing to cheer about on that ghastly day. The B-17, piloted by First Lieutenant Robert Richards, landed his plane at Bellows Field on the eastern side of the island. As the strip was, again, way too short, Richards made contact with the ground and then maneuvered the plane so that one wheel would go off the asphalt and into the dirt. The plane skidded off the landing area and into a cane field. The crew was unharmed. Yet before they left the damaged plane, they removed the Norden bombsite. If the Japanese were truly invading Oahu, they would not be getting America's latest bombing technology. The last of the B-17s was hounded mercilessly, but Lieutenant Frank Bostrom turned north and kept going until the Zeros stopped chasing him. As he only had a few minutes of fuel left, despite the light load of no guns and practically empty fuel tanks, he landed the aircraft on the Kahuku Golf Course, near the radar unit. The crew was unharmed, and the plane would be fixed and put back into action. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub, with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. 
It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Back to the first wave of attacked Japanese aircraft. Due to the confusion of the flares, some of the dive bombers beat the torpedo bombers to the harbor, and they struck first on the southern side or the southwest corner of Ford Island, a few minutes before the first torpedo bomber launched its primary weapon. Between this attack and the one at Wheeler Field to the north, along with the attack on the naval air station at Kiniohi on the east coast and Bello Fields just south of that, reports of an attack started to be sounded, but they were either delivered in a confused haze or simply not believed by most that heard them. However, the ships along Battleship Row now had some inkling that something was up. This would cost some of the torpedo bombers attacking the battleships, their lives. To better appreciate the nightmare that was the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, it's best to have a mental map of Ford Island. I have also used the appropriate map as this episode's cover. Ford Island, in the center of Pearl Harbor, runs diagonally from the northeast to the southwest. Battleship Row is on the island's southeastern side, while other vessels are at anchor on its northwest side. To the southeast of Battleship Row is the Southeast Lock, a waterway that ends some 5,000 yards to the southeast. To the lock's left, or west, are numerous dry docks. To its right is a small peninsula that will limit the approach of the torpedo planes as they approached from the southeast. Hickam Air Base is south of the southeast lock. The torpedo planes from the carrier Soyu, led by Lieutenant Nagai, approached Ford Island from the north at 7.55 a.m. Nagai could not help but be disappointed when he did not see the carriers, which would have been on the north side had they been in anchor. Either way, he had his list of priorities, so pulled up, followed by his wingmen, and swung around the west coast of Ford Island. However, the six planes behind him went in for the attack. On the north side of Ford Island was the decommissioned Florida-class battleship, Utah. To her left was the converted seaplane tender, Tangier. To her right were the light cruisers Raleigh and Detroit. Considering the Utah was the largest of these vessels, the six pilots probably thought she was a capital ship. The six planes, one by one, released their torpedoes. This despite the fact that squadron leader Lieutenant Matsumura had specifically told his men not to go after the Utah, even though it was in a location normally reserved for a carrier. The Japanese knew it was being used by the Americans 
for target practice. Still, the overexcited pilots let loose. Utah was hit twice, just before 8 a.m. The remaining torpedoes missed, except for one, one of the last ones released. It was so far off course, however, that it hit the Raleigh nearby. The Utah would capsize at 8.12 a.m. The Raleigh almost followed suit, but quick action by her damage control teams saved her. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Nagai and his wingman had swung around the west coast of Ford Island. As he completed his turn, he saw what he thought was a battleship. Across from Battleship Row to the southwest were dry docks, and there on the north side or outside of the dry docks was the light cruiser Helena, up against the dock, while the minesleeper Oglala was next to Helena, on its outside, in between the Helena and the approaching plain of Nagai. The silhouette of the two ships probably explains his mistake. Nagai released his torpedo at 7.57 a.m. that went under the outer Oglala and rose just in time to hit the Helena. But both ships were damaged by the explosion. The Helena listed and was soon leaning on the Oglala. She would capsize within minutes. Nagai's wingman, either not fooled by the shape of the two ships or wanting his own target, continued turning to the east and made for Battleship Row. Meanwhile, seconds behind these planes, the eight torpedo planes from the carrier Huryu saw no worthy targets on the north side of Ford Island as they approached from the northwest. Lieutenant Harata, leader of the formation, and his wingman swung around Ford Island and were followed by six other planes. As Harata was in the lead, he and his wingman were just behind Nagai, but did not follow him in his attack. However, these six planes behind Harata and his wingman came around the island just in time to see Nagai release his fish. The first four of these followed suit. Their torpedoes made for the Helena, but they all missed. Still, damage was done to the facilities. As for the last two of Harata's formation, they pulled up at the last second and continued to turn east to make for Battleship Row. As these two formations were so hard upon each other, there were now four planes from the Hiryu and one plane from the Soryu going at Battleship Row. But due to the various speeds of the planes, again from the failure of the flare signal, these five planes were cutting across the path of the 24 dive bombers making their approach from the southeast. The attack of the torpedo bombers against the battleships commenced at 7.57 a.m. at the same time that Lieutenant Nagai had attacked the Helena. Due to the geography of Oahu, just south of Battleship Row, the incoming torpedo bombers really only had one lane from which to launch their attack, with any chance of success, along the east lock. If they ventured too far to the right or further east, they would have to fly over a small peninsula covered by naval buildings and 
additional dry dock facilities. The resulting turbulence would have affected their torpedoes and reduced their window to launch their weapons to just six seconds. So most of the Cates, as Americans called them, flew up the southeast lock in single file. However, this meant that the attack would not be as spread out as planned. Most of the Cates would target the unfortunate ships on the left or west end of Battleship Row, namely the Oklahoma and West Virginia. The vessels of Battleship Row were positioned thusly. At the opening of the southeast lock, dead ahead, was the Oklahoma. Behind her, alongside the dock, was the battleship Maryland. To the right was the West Virginia, and again behind her, next to the dock, was the Tennessee. Still further right was the repair ship Vestal. Behind her was the Arizona. And at the right end was the Nevada, sitting alone. But to the left of the Oklahoma, the first ship mentioned, a few battleship links away, was the battleship California, readying for inspection. In between the California and the Oklahoma was the fleet oil tanker, Neosho. All the ships here, again, except for the Neosho and Vestal, were capital ships. Normally, Oklahoma would have been at the other end of the line, to the right, next to the Nevada, as it was a part of that division. But as the Admiral of the Maryland was going to inspect her readiness for war the next day, she was placed alongside that ship, and its hatches were open, so the inside of Oklahoma would be cooler during the inspection. Meanwhile, on the decks of the battleships, the Marines were striking morning colors, while the bands on each deck, ready to play the Star-Spangled Banner. At 7.57 a.m., a musician aboard the Oklahoma heard a noise above him and looked up. He saw numerous planes approaching. He told the guy next to him, I never knew we had so many planes. The guy said, Neither did I. The 12 torpedo bombers from the Akagi came in from the southeast at 7.57, 1,000 feet apart from each other. As they approached, they dropped down to a mere 50 feet. 11 of the 12 torpedo planes launched their torpedoes at either the Oklahoma or the West Virginia as they passed over. However, one plane from the group turned left or west and launched a torpedo at the USS California, striking her. It was then that the four planes of the carrier Huyu came in, after not going after the Helena, and turned to take the same route as the first twelve attacking torpedo planes. Again, they went after the two closest battleships, the Oklahoma and West Virginia. However, because of the level bombers hitting the southwest corner of Ford Island just minutes before this, there was a measure of alarm aboard the battleships, and their turrets were manned. It was Sunday morning, and the crews were minimal, and weapons had been secured. But as the first attack of torpedo bombers came at Battleship Row, American guns were made active and engaged the enemy. Still, the first 16 enemy planes survived the ship's 
anti-aircraft batteries. But when the 12 torpedo bombers from the carrier Kaga approached three miles behind the first attack, their reception was much more intense. Though being thrown off somewhat by the battleship's guns, these 12 planes mostly went after the exposed and close by Oklahoma and West Virginia. But in the middle of this attack wave, the last plane from the Soryu, which again had not fired on the Helena, came in from a slightly different direction, which is probably why it was not fired upon and launched its torpedo at the California. It scored a hit. This was the second strike on the California. But this was not the only effect the Soryu plane would have on the attack at Battleship Row. As it had been coming in on its own path, it threw off one of the twelve planes from Kaga. This pilot swerved to the right, and clearing the small peninsula, launched its torpedo at the Nevada, the furthest battleship to the right. Its weapon went into the vessel at 8.03 a.m. By now, the Americans, at least along Battleship Row, were fully alive to the attack. Thus, the 12 planes from Kaga suffered casualties. The first two groups had made it through unharmed, but five of the last seven planes from the Kaga were shot out of the sky. As these planes went down, oil was gushing from the Oklahoma, West Virginia, and California. However, the attack hadn't been perfect, and this had started with the flares of Fuchida. In theory, the torpedo bombers should have been able to start and finish their attack in one and a half minutes, maybe two. But that's not what happened. Planes from the west flew in the path of the torpedo bombers, which caused some planes to circle around before coming at the battleships. The result? In all, this attack so far had taken 11 minutes. At least 21 torpedoes were launched at Oklahoma and West Virginia, which represented over half of the total released so far. Oklahoma had 12 torpedoes fired at her. Five made contact. Unsurprisingly, she capsized 15 minutes later. West Virginia was struck by seven torpedoes, but damage control and countermeasures stopped her from capsizing. Still, the water she took on forced her downward to settle at the bottom of the harbor. As for the California, on the left or west end of the main group, she was hit twice, but should have weathered the damage. However, all her hatches were open in preparation for an inspection. Thus, water rushed into and throughout the ship. Fire spread, which forced the men to abandon her. Eventually, they came back, but by then, the ship was beyond saving. For the attackers and the defenders, there was no time to assess the damage done up to this point. But with hindsight, there were 36 torpedoes launched in all, with 19 hits, a 48% hit rate. Then came Fuchida and his 49 high-level bombers, flying at 10,000 feet. Their goal was to strike at the inner ships of Battleship Row, the ones 
along the docks that the torpedo bombers could not get to. The horizontal bombers approached in groups of five. Their attack started at 8.05 a.m. The California, the first in line, from the point of view of the bombers, was flown over and ignored by most of the planes, probably because of her position being separate from the main group. Besides, the pilots could see that she was damaged. Still, a few tried, but all missed. Fuchida and his planes flew over relatively safe from the battleship's guns and spread out their bombs. This was achieved by having groups of bombers stay in tight formation and dropping their armor-piercing bombs at a specific target at the same time. By the time they were done, they had achieved a 20% hit rate, which was what Fuchida had prayed for, daring not to hope it would be any higher. This meant that about 10 bombs found targets. However, a few of them either malfunctioned or their yield was reduced or they did not detonate at all. Still, the damage they caused was certainly more spread out than the torpedo attack. The Maryland beside the Oklahoma was hit twice, indirectly, but the Tennessee and the West Virginia side by side were hit properly. Next to the Tennessee was the Arizona, and beside it, on the outside, was the repair ship, the Vestal. The smaller ship was hit twice, which caused some flooding. The Vestal was soon forced to move away and beach itself before it sank. But then came the tragedy of the Arizona, in between the Tennessee and the Nevada. Ten bombers were grouped to go after her, and when the lead bomber waved his white flag, the planes released their 500-kilo converted battleship shells as one. Twenty-six seconds later, two bombs scored a hit. At 8.10 a.m., one bomb hit her aft on the quarterdeck. The second bomb landed near her number two turret and then penetrated through the deck. As the bomb was inside the ship before it exploded, the 12 centimeters of armored steel above the explosion point enhanced and channeled the explosion. Within seconds, a million pounds of ammunition would explode. For those watching from nearby ships, a spurt of flame came out nearby the guns of Arizona's number two turret. A second later, an explosion of the forward magazine lifted the ship out of the water. At that moment, more than a thousand U.S. military personnel aboard the Arizona died. The ship was ripped apart and began to sink when she came back down. The Arizona's fires would last for days. Half of those who died that day were from the Arizona. Later in life, Fuchida would become a Presbyterian missionary, and he would look back at this moment and write, The flame that erupted from the Arizona was a hateful, mean-looking red flame, the kind that powder produces. And I knew at once that a big magazine had exploded. Terrible indeed. At this point, only the Nevada at the far right end was able to get underway. 
it was decided that she would leave port before any other attack came her way. This was at 8.40 a.m. Back on the north side of Ford Island, the lone mini-sub out of the five that had gained entry into Pearl chose this moment to attack. However, the sea tender Curtis, just to the sub's north, spotted her. The sub managed to fire at Curtis first, but missed. The crew of the Curtis replied in kind and hit the sub with a five-inch shell. To the northwest of the sub, the destroyer Monaghan, which was getting underway, was approaching this combat area. The sub turned to launch a torpedo at her, too, but again missed. This was probably due to the Monaghan's pouring on of speed, as it intended to ram the much smaller vessel. At 8.40 a.m., the sub was hit by the destroyer and death-charged. The sub went down with its two crew members. Next time, we'll cover the second air attack and then the Americans' responses to the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, because there's a lot going on at Pearl Harbor all at the same time, I'm going to kind of do a Quentin Tarantino with it. I'm going to cover the first attack from the Japanese point of view, the second wave uh, from from the Japanese point of view, then go back and do the Americans and, and then... Uh, put it all together. Um, so bear with me as I go through that. Um, I have the Boston Conference at Harvard coming up next week. So there will be one more episode. I'm doing an interview with someone. Uh, as far as your members, just hang in there. When I get back, I'm going to put out like three membership episodes in a row j- just so to get caught up or whatever. So again, I apologize. Um, thank you for for being patient with me. Just wanted to thank everyone who responded to my request last time, uh, really coming through for me and helping me out in this dark time. Um, and again, if you ever wanted to make a donation or sign up for membership, you can do both of the website, worldwar2podcast.net. So just saying hi to my latest members, uh, Peter W. from Ashfield, New South Wales, Australia, Christian L. from Manning Tree, UK, Dino Dino S. from Brisbane, Australia. Hello. Been there. Loved it. Uh, Melinda B. from Littleton, Colorado. Richard R. from Charlottesville, Virginia. Hey, neighbor. Hey, Richard. Uh, Come see me sometime. Um, That came out wrong. Gregory T. from Round Rock, Texas. Andrew K. from Bloomville, New York. Anders S. from Oslo, Norway. Uh, Gear M.S. from Stroman, Norway. Sorry, Gear. Uh, Lee's Comics from Mountain View, California. Thank you, Lee's Comics. Colin H. from Edinburgh, UK. Um, I'm trying to add Edinburgh on to my trip next year to London and um, parts around there. But anyway, so hopefully I can come up there because Paul, my the guy who does my website, keeps sending pictures and it's all gorgeous. Um, then there's Wes C. Thank you, Wes, for, uh, for helping out with the show. Brian D. from Livermore, California. Andrew G. from Jackson Heights, New York. Uh, Reese C. from 
Isaacs, Australia. Isaacs, Australia. I'm not sure. Sorry, Reese. Uh, Robert T. from Atlanta, Georgia. And I'd like to thank Paul H., who sent me a newspaper article about supposedly when the Japanese attacked California in February 42. And Paul also bought a Churchill mug. So thank you, Paul, very much for supporting the show and giving me information. Um, and lastly, uh, as far as donations, there was Jonathan H. from San Francisco, California, who also threatened to buy me a beer, which I'm going to try very hard to take him up on that. And Jason B., who I think is a student, he contributed his might, considering his uh, means at the moment. So thank you very much, Jason. So again, for everybody, just thank you a lot for supporting the show. And uh, like I said, next week there'll be a interview out, and then I'll be at the Harvard Conference for a couple days and come back and jump right into the membership episodes and pick up where we left off with Pearl Harbor, then at least to the Philippines and everything else going on, MacArthur and all the drama that's coming. So we'll, so we'll jump into it, and I'm having a lot of fun. And uh, so, again, just thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 